morning, everyone. It's a good worship today all through our services. I appreciate our team so much. I would like uh, to just remind you that today is, we call it Move Up Sunday. It's where all of our students move up in their grades or their years. So if you're a student, would you stand? Let's give them a hand. All right, come on, guys. You can be seated. So, guys, on this side, that side, down here, it's great to have you here. I love it when our students are in the service. I'm talking about a very difficult topic today. We're going to be talking about hell because that's one of the objections people have toward Christianity is the doctrine or the teaching on hell. You know, how can a loving God send people to hell? We're going to answer that. In the last service, we had a student, actually, uh, brand new uh, to Wooddale, came by herself to attend worship here. Uh, I won't show you the whole story. And man, she asked some very profound questions at the end. We had a great conversation. She's going to come back. So I just love it when you guys are here. Makes me feel younger, which (laughs) is helpful. I'm battling allergies and a sinus thing going on. So therefore, my already nasal voice is more nasal. I got my Kleenex here. I got my water. I got my cough drop. I had a little jar here earlier with this tea but it tastes like kerosene, so this service I decided not to drink it, all right? Um, So a tough topic, and what I'm going to ask you to do is stay with me for the whole message. Don't hear part of it and go, "Eh, I don't like like what you're saying there. Hear it all the way through, and and don't judge it, all right? Um, I want to tell you a story, though, about my past. When I was between degrees in my associate's and bachelor's degree, I went home to Michigan, uh, Marsha and I had just gotten married, and I was very interested in medicine. I had just gotten my EMT, Emergency Medical Technician Certificate, from Hennepin Tech, by the way, while I was here 40 years ago. That's scary. Uh, I started school when I was like five in college. <laughs> anyway, uh, <clears throat> and I, I got a job on an ambulance, Saginaw Mercy Ambulance, and uh, worked in the inner city and uh, in the county as well. And I was paired with a paramedic, which means I got to go on all the big emergency calls. So one day, a phone call comes in with a dispatcher on the radio and says, you need to get to a certain Catholic retreat center. There's a man in his mid-40s who's dropped to the floor unconscious. They think he's had a heart attack. So we got in the rig, you know, put the lights on, the sirens, made it to the Catholic retreat center, went in, and sure enough, right there is this guy, about 40, 45 years old, and totally unconscious. First thing you do is you check for vitals. He wasn't breathing, he didn't have a heart rate. So I had to start a, or a heartbeat, so I had to start an airway. His jaw was clenched, uh, which sometimes happens. So I had to use a certain instrument to get his mouth open, get the airway established, start CPR, and we just couldn't get a heartbeat. So the paramedic defibrillated him a couple times, and finally that little beat started. Now what happened next is miraculous, I think, because within seconds of getting his heartbeat back, the guy is sitting up. He is flush red, he's animated, and for the next 25-minute ride to St. Luke's Hospital, I'm in the back keeping an eye on his vitals, he cannot stop talking, and this is what he says over and over again. I've just been to hell. It's worse than you think. I don't ever want to go there. I'm going to change my life. I've just been to hell. It's worse than you think. I don't ever want to go there. I'm going to change my life. Those are almost his exact words. He wasn't under narcotics. He wasn't hallucinating. He was as alert and vigilant as, as anybody I have ever seen. 
And you know, if, if I hadn't believed in hell, I wouldn't have been able to argue with him. Because as far as he was concerned, he'd been there and come back and something had to change in his life. So the question I want to ask you <clears throat> is very simple. Do you believe that there is a literal hell that exists? You'd be surprised how many people do believe that and don't believe that, and how many Christians even struggle with the idea of hell. I had somebody come up to me last night in our Saturday night service. She's 82 years old, wonderful, wonderful lady. And she looked at me and she said, I just want you to know, Pastor, in my 82 years, I have never heard a message on hell. Now, when you think about this, Jesus said more about hell than any of the other people in the Bible, prophets and apostles. It does exist. It's a real place. And not talking about it isn't going to make it go away. It's a reality, and, and what do we really know about it? Well, if you ask Americans, about 72% of Americans say they believe in heaven, right? And they, that they define heaven in that Pew Research as the place where good people go who try to live a good life. 58%, more than half Americans, believe in hell. And they define hell as a place where bad people go who are not sorry for what they've done. Now, what's interesting is you can't find anybody, however, in these you know, research surveys that will say, oh yes, and I'm one of the bad people that's going to hell. It's always a bunch of other people in the demography who are going to go to hell, but it certainly isn't me. And that's because I think a lot of us have this sense that if we live a good enough life, that's our ticket out of hell, that's our ticket into heaven. By the way, you don't want to miss the next series on heaven. You've got to be here. We've got one more message in this series than Father's Day, then we start the series on heaven. Because I think a lot of us totally misunderstand what heaven's all about. I think a lot of us misunderstand what it means to be saved as well. But that's for that, those messages. Anyway, my point being this. How does one have the assurance they're going to go to heaven? And Jesus makes it, in the New Testament, makes it very clear. So let's look at some passages. John 14, 6. Would you read it out loud with me, please? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. So Jesus is pretty clear. He's the doorway. He's the way into heaven, so to speak. Paul adds this in Romans chapter 10. Let's read it aloud. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So again, Paul is reaffirming what Jesus said. He is he's the way. Now listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 7. Let's read it aloud. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate, and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Now when Jesus spoke those words, he was speaking them to religious people, speaking them to a Jewish audience, Pharisees, Sadducees, and others who knew the law, read the law, went to synagogue, went to temple, observed Passover, and many of the other festivals, traditions. So when he says this to them, what's he really saying to them? Well, if you think about the Jews, they, you know, they took God's law, which was meant to show us how sinful we are, because nobody can keep the law perfectly. That's why they had to make sacrifices. What they did is they took the law and they professionalized it. What I mean by that is they just said, if you do your best to live by the law, live a righteous life, that's your ticket in. You make the sacrifices, but the law is our savior. When Jesus showed up and said, no, the law just shows you how much you need a savior, I am the savior, they didn't want to hear that. 
because that took it out of their hands. It wasn't going to be them working out their way to God, taking what God had given them and making it rules to live by. They were going to have to actually place their faith in this person who claims to be the Son of God himself. And that's why many of them rejected him. The only Savior they wanted was a Savior who would rescue them from Rome. That's why Jesus said, broad is the way. Broad is the way that people come up with to get into heaven, to be with my Father. Narrow is the way when it's only one way, my way. Which makes a verse in Proverbs very, very important, worth committing to your memory. Proverbs 14, 12, let's read it aloud. There is a way that appears to be right, but in the end it leads to death. Now that's a verse worth memorizing, and that's a verse which is kind of a commentary in our culture today which really has been a commentary on mankind since Genesis 3 when man rebelled against God. But especially these days, we're all trying to figure out our way to God. Our way to connect with God. And Jesus says, you may come up with a way that emotionally, psychologically, and even theologically works for you, but I'm telling you, if that way isn't me, there's no way you're going to get in. And so we read in John chapter 10, verse 9, it says aloud, please, I am the gate, whoever enters through me will be saved. You guys read really well, you know that? Sounds great. And I think it honors God when we say and read his word aloud together sometimes. So Jesus makes it pretty clear, if you want to go to heaven, it's got to be by me, through me, and no other way. And I think that's what causes a lot of people to stumble over the doctrine or the teaching of hell. Because we don't want it to be so narrow, because we struggle with people we know who are going to go there if something doesn't change in their relationship with God through Jesus Christ. I mean, have you ever read the description of hell? Let me read some of the descriptions to you that come right out of the scriptures. Revelation 21.8 is called a fiery burning, a fiery lake of burning sulfur. Or in Matthew 13.50, a blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Or Acts 2.27, a realm of the dead. Or Jude 1.7, eternal fire. Or Mark 9, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. I don't like those, do you? I don't like reading those words. I don't like that description. And what I struggle with personally is thinking that my lost loved one or my neighbor or my co-worker or my fellow students or somebody else I know who does, you know, who rejects Christ, who doesn't believe in Christ, but is such a good person that they're going to spend their eternity in a place like that. And so what we do is we try, emotionally, psychologically, spiritually, to come up with something a little different, something a little bit better. Pastors try to do it, theologians try to do it, and I'm going to give you two kind of popular views today. One of them is called annihilationism. Annihilationism. And what that means is, okay, so people do die, they reject God, they go to hell, but they're not going to suffer forever in eternity in hell. Eventually, they will just cease to exist. And that's kind of a popular view among some. The other is called universalism, and there are two types perhaps more, but two specific types of universalism. Pluralistic universalism and Christian universalism. I almost want to laugh when I say Christian universalism, but I won't. All right, pluralistic universalism is this idea that all religions, 
all religions eventually are going to get us to God and get us into heaven because all religions represent various ways of trying to find the way, of trying to find the truth. And someday we're going to get there, we're all going to go, aha, that's what we were aiming for. I'm here, I'm in, I'm good. The second view, Christian universalism, goes something like this. Yes, people are going to reject Christ, they are going to die, they are going to go to hell, but they're going to be given a second chance. That somehow, when they come to their senses and realize how they lived and who Christ is and what he did for them, they're going to repent. They're going to say they're sorry and God's going to let them in. And it may take a while to empty hell because some people are really stubborn. But eventually, everybody's going to get it and we're all going to be in. We're all going to be good. Now, personally, I really like that view. In my flesh. In my emotions. Psychologically, I like that view. I want everybody to get in. It seems right. It seems good to me. But just because it makes sense to me does not mean it's right. Just because I like it doesn't mean it's right. Just because it then eases the tension of the doctrine of hell and I don't have to talk about it doesn't make it right. You know, and, you know, that's kind of where we're at in our, in, in our Christian culture these days. If there's something that makes us uncomfortable, we have a tendency just not to talk about it. As though it's no longer relevant, which is not true which isn't true. So we have to talk about it. We have to talk about the doctrine of hell. It's all over scripture if you read your Bibles lately, which brings up an, an important question. What, why do you believe what you believe about hell? Who has informed your thinking about what hell is like? And, and I'm gonna guess that a lot of us have an informed view of hell that is not necessarily biblically based. And that's why we have such a hard time with it. That's why I said, don't, you know, walk out on me till you hear the whole thing. Now, if you have a cold and you go to the bathroom, I won't be offended, all right? Because as soon as I say that, someone's like, I can't get up, I gotta go. <clears throat> but listen carefully. Who or how have you been informed about hell? Has it been by Hollywood? Right now, there's a movie out called uh, Inferno. Is that what it's Dante's Inferno. Uh, how many of you have seen it? Tom Hanks in it. You say, well, I've seen it, but I don't want to admit it. Okay, well, anyway, there's a movie out there, all right? There's, there's books about hell, there's video games about hell, right? And there's all kinds of stuff out there about what hell is like. Well, is, is what I'm hearing and, and thinking and learning about hell from my peers, from movies, from books, from ideas out there, is it, is it biblical? Is it the right view? Is it the right perspective? I mean, what is the story behind hell? Literally, what is the story? And we're going to look at one right now. So turn to Luke chapter 16 in your Bibles, okay? Or turn them on at home. You can join us as well. Luke chapter 16. Let's look at that together. This is a parable. Some scholars think it's a true story. Uh, most disagree. They say it's a parable that Jesus told. I agree with that camp. You have to be careful with parables. You don't press them too much because they're usually meant to convey one central idea. But I think in telling this parable, Jesus gives us a sense of what hell is like, what hell is. And you might be surprised. So the story starts with a rich man in verse 19 of Luke 16. It says... There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. Now, who is that rich man? The context helps us out a little bit. Look at verse 14 and 15. It says, the Pharisees who loved what? Money. money, all right? The Pharisees who loved money heard all this, what Jesus was saying, and were sneering at Jesus. Can you imagine that? Just kind of uh, sneering at him, all right? He said to them, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others by your self-righteousness, by your wealth, by your goodness. 
But God knows your hearts. God has x-ray vision. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. So in other words, the way you guys think is the way to God is detestable to God because it's not the right way. So when he's talking about this rich man here in verse 19, he's talking about them. Of course, others as well, but he's talking about them. He goes on and he introduces another character in verse 20. He says, at his gate was laid a beggar. So the fact that the guy has to be laid there means he's probably paralyzed. They have to bring him there every day. Why do they bring him there? Because he needs food. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's uh, table. Even the dog came, even the dogs came and licked his sores. That's a gruesome scene, isn't it? This poor guy, it's just, he's like a dog, begging for any scraps that he can get a hold of. Now, what happens in verse 22 is a twist. It would have been a jolt to the listeners. It says, the time came when the beggar died, and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. We'll talk more about what Abraham's side is in our series on heaven coming up at the end of June. The rich man also died and was buried in Hades. That's not good where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. All right, a couple things. In the Bible, sometimes apocalyptic language is employed to describe something that is indescribable. So, I would agree with many theologians who say that when hell is described as a place of gnashing of teeth, where there's fire and brimstone and sulfur, where there is the worm that never dies, it's metaphorical, it's not literal. Meaning, it's language that's trying to say, this is what hell is like. Now, you know, sometimes when you say that, people go, I hate worms, right? I can't imagine, you know, burning in a fire. Oh, hell's not gonna be as bad as I thought it was gonna be. You know, when you start thinking that way, I have other kinds of concerns. But the point is this, it's worse than that language describes. It's worse than that language describes. So in the language of the end times, some of it's literal, some of it's symbolic, describing things that it's so hard to transfer the meaning into human language. Secondly, notice the guy's attitude in this passage of scripture. He's an arrogant guy, isn't he? I mean, he's telling Abraham, the patriarch, the founder, I mean, the father of all, the Jewish tribe. He's saying, you tell Lazarus, that slave, to get down here and give me some water. It's really hot. Really arrogant, don't you think? Come down to um, verse 25. It says, but Abraham replied, son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things. I, I find it interesting that Jesus employs such endearing terms. He's got Abraham saying, son, you're one of my, you're one of mine. One of my people. Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things at your hands, by the way. That's what he's saying. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. In other words, it's eternal, and it's inescapable. As much as we would like to come and comfort you, we can't, nor can you come and be comforted here. Verse 27, he answered, then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family. There he is again, right? Boss him around. Send that Lazarus. 
like a slave, like a servant, send it to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. In other words, they've got the truth. You send anybody, they've got the truth. You had the truth. You went to synagogue. You went to temple. You had the Torah. You had the truth. You read the prophets. You read the Psalms. You had the truth. Verse 30. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. When I read that passage of scripture, I think about Jesus' resurrection. I mean, Jesus rose from the dead. The tomb was empty. He appeared to 500 at once and many others, and the message went out. And still, there were religious people, Pharisees and Sadducees and others, that denied his resurrection. Not because it didn't happen, but because they didn't want to cope with it. They didn't like the idea that it wouldn't be their way. That he was right. It was his way. Now, when you look at this passage of Scripture... Did you notice that there's something missing? Excuse me. Notice there's something missing in this passage of Scripture? Nowhere does this guy repent. Ah, he's on a roll. <clears throat> Nowhere does this guy repent. Doesn't ever say sorry. Doesn't he, he ever says, I wish I wasn't here. I wish this wasn't happening in my life. Nowhere. In fact, if you read Genesis to Revelation, in any parable, in any vision, in anything that has to do with people after death, you never hear somebody saying, I don't like it here, I wish I'd lived a different life, I'm really sorry, God, have mercy on me, forgive me. Do you know why that is? <clears throat> because God doesn't send anybody to hell. We choose to go to hell. And secondly, <clears throat> those who choose to go to hell, those who choose to go to hell don't want out. The guy says, I'm miserable here, I don't like it here, but you never hear him say, I want out. I want to be freed from this, which means that hell is a lot more complex than what we think or may have thought. And get rid of this notion in your mind that God's like some divine exterminator who grabs a, a rat by the tail, like grabs us, and dangles us over the flames, and we're pleading and we're screaming, please don't do this to me, please don't do this to me, and he lets go and he laughs as we descend into the pit of fire. If that's the picture you have of hell, it is not biblical. That's a cartoon. That's not real. You got to let it go. C.S. Lewis said there are two kinds of people. He said there's a person who sees God and sees the truth and says to God, God, your will be done, not mine. God, your will be done, not mine. In other words, God, I want to follow you. I want to trust you. But he said there's another kind of people where God looks at them and God says to them, your will be done, thy will be done. You don't want to do my will. You want your will. You want your way. So go your way and deal with your way and what it's going to do to you as a result of it. There's a great book that C.S. Lewis wrote that you ought to read and your students would enjoy it very much. It's called The Great Divorce. Has anybody read that? If you haven't read it, I encourage you to do it. <coughs> Excuse me, you students, you'll, you'll, you will enjoy the book. I mean, you'll enjoy it, it'll make you think, but it's, it's fascinating reading. It's called The Great Divorce. I encourage you to read it this summer, all right? Anyway, C.S. Lewis kind of pictures that story of a group of people who take a bus, basically, and go to hell and, and then, or, um, are, are in hell, but get a bus and go to heaven, and they can't stand heaven. They want to go back to where they were. You can read the rest yourself. Tim Keller, pastor and theologian, says, what is hell then? 
It is God actively giving us up to what we have freely chosen to go our own way, be our own master of our fate, the captain of our soul, to get away from him and his control. It is God banishing us to regions we have desperately tried to get into all our lives. J.I. Packer, the theologian, great theologian, says, Scripture sees hell as self-chosen. Hell appears as God's gesture of respect for human choice. All receive what they actually chose, either to be with God forever, worshiping him, or without God forever, worshiping themselves. Now, if that is the case, and people go to hell, and in essence really don't want any place else but to be in hell, given the fact they've rejected God and don't want God, what happens to a person that leads them that way? To answer that question, let me ask you a question. What is the name of the rich man in this passage of Scripture? He has no name. Lazarus is given a name. We know the beggar, his name is Lazarus. But the rich guy is nameless. So what is his identity? His identity is what he's become. Rich, self-righteous, and powerful. And his identity is going to consume him. And his identity is going to consume him. If I were to ask you students, what is your identity? What would you say to me? Or if I asked your parents, what is your identity? How would you respond to that? Some of us would say, our identity is our career. We would say, well, I'm a, an engineer, or I'm a chemist, or I'm a doctor, or I'm a pastor, I'm a whatever it is. That's, that's who I am. I would say, well, I'm a, a you know, um, I'm a computer uh, expert, or whatever that is. Someone else might say, well, I'm... I'm good looking. That would take kind of some pride to say it, but you say my, my identity is my beauty. Everybody remarks about how beautiful I am. Or you might say my identity is my ability. I'm very gifted. I'm very talented. I'm known that way. Or my identity is, I, you know, I'm uh, is sex. And I'm known for my sexuality and et cetera. Or my identity is, you know, I'm a partier. I can out drink anybody. Or my identity is, you know, I'm poor. My identity is I'm, I'm lazy or whatever it is. <clears throat> What's your identity? How are you defined? N.T. Wright, eminent theologian, one of, the best, one of the greatest theologians of our time right now, N.T. Wright says that perhaps hell is that place where our identity takes us over and consumes us and destroys us over and over and over again. Let me give you an illustration. All of us have probably known somebody who's been addicted to drugs. Maybe you know somebody right now. Maybe it's you. I don't know. You know, some drugs are just, all drugs are bad, but some drugs are, real, are just terrible. You get so addicted and, and so fast. Meth, crack, heroin. People get addicted, uh, addicted to alcohol. You watch somebody who's addicted to something like meth, and what it will do is it literally takes over their life. It will begin to eat away their bodies. And what happens is they know they're addicted. They say they want to stop, but they live for the next high. It becomes, it consumes them. I live for getting high. I got to get high. And eventually what happens is that addiction destroys their life. It leads them into denial. It leads them into all kinds of bizarre behavior. And it takes over their life. Hell is the place where my addiction to my identity takes over my life. C.S. Lewis put it this way. He said, hell begins with a grumbling mood always complaining, always blaming others. But you are still distinct from it. You may even criticize it in yourself and wish you could stop it. But there may come a day when you can no longer. Then there will be in you left to criticize the mood or even to enjoy it. But just the humble, just the grumble itself going on forever like a machine. 
And it's not a question of God sending us to hell. In each of us, there is something growing which will be hell unless it is nipped in the bud, unless Christ intervenes, unless the addiction stops. We will literally consume ourselves. That's why the Danish theologian and philosopher Soren Kierkegaard said, sin is building your identity on anything but God. That's why Jesus came to the cross, to die for our sins. He literally faced hell so we wouldn't have to. He went to hell so we wouldn't have to go to hell, and he conquered hell and death because he's God, and he broke out of hell to say, now I want to give you freedom, I want to give you forgiveness, and to give us his identity, Christ in me, the hope of glory. That's why Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, the life. No man comes to the Father but through you know, when I was working through this passage, I, I saw kind of a picture of this. It wasn't a vision either. It was a picture from Daniel chapter 4. It came to my mind right away. I want to read it to you. Daniel was friends and a servant of a man named Nebuchadnezzar, who was just a very wicked, evil king, most powerful king on earth at that time. Nebuchadnezzar, uh, Daniel kept kind of witnessing to him along the way, and Nebuchadnezzar would have these strange dreams, and he had a very strange dream. He told Daniel about it, and Daniel interpreted it, and Daniel said, Nebuchadnezzar, you got to get on your knees and repent before the God of the universe or you're in big trouble. Well, he didn't listen. And 12 months later, verse 29, it says, 12 months later, as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, he said, is not this the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? Those are troubling words, aren't they? You know bad's coming now, right? Look at me, look how great I am, look how powerful I am. Oh, this is all about me. Verse 31, even as the words were on his lips, a voice came from heaven. This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox. Seven times will pass by you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all the kingdoms on the earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. Immediately, what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from people and ate grass like the ox. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird. Literally, he went mad. And to me, that's a picture of hell. You want it your way, God says, have it your way, and we become consumed by our way, and we go mad for eternity. Now, I know right about this point, there's a question looming in your minds, because it's in my mind as well. You say, okay, pastor, I can get there. It's hard, but I can get there. <clears throat> I can accept that people will reject Christ. They'll go to hell, and, you know, they, they just don't want God, and, and they'll be consumed by their self, you know, and their, their misery, and and they'll be miserable for all of eternity in a misery that we can't even comprehend. But what about the innocent people that never hear the good news about Jesus Christ? Do you mean to tell me they're going to go to hell? That's a good question, isn't it? It's a question I wrestle with too. And I got to be careful when I answer that question. I got to be careful that I answer it based on the truth and not on my emotions or my feelings. My father, I love him very much. He's a good man. He's a godly man. My dad was a missionary in Papua New Guinea. I lived there as a little boy. And he went to places that missionaries had never been to before. He went into this far off place in Western Highlands. And he came to a tribe and he introduced the gospel to them. And there's a woman, actually there's a picture he still has of her, covered in gray mud. She was mourning. And, and he shared the gospel with her. 
to a translator, and she asked my dad this question, what's going to happen to all my ancestors who never heard this message? My dad has wrestled with that question, has haunted him for so long that, that, that my dad really wrestles with, with how to approach this question. And he and I have some disagreement on it. He has a tendency to approach it more psychologically and emotionally. Well, I want to. I keep saying to him, we've got to go back to the truth. You know the truth. We've got to face the truth. What is the truth? First of all, we know there's only one way to God, and that's through Jesus Christ. But don't leave yet. There's only one way to God, and that's through Jesus Christ. I know that for a fact. The second fact I know is 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, where it says he's willing that none, none, none should perish, but all, all should come to repentance. So the God of the universe doesn't want anybody to perish. You know, hell, the Bible tells us, was made for the devil and the, and his fall, and the fallen angels. God is willing that none should perish. The third fact I know is that there's nobody innocent. There's nobody innocent. David said, I was conceived in sin. All has sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So none of us can say, God, I was innocent. You didn't give me a chance. The fourth thing I know is this, that God is fair and just. It's throughout the Psalms, it's throughout the Bible. God is fair and just. God is so fair and just, I'd rather have him judge me than you. And you'd rather have him judge you than me. Because God is fair and just and merciful. So what do you do with that person who never hears about the gospel based on those facts? At that point, I claim to be an agnostic. So what do you mean by that? At, that? at that point, I claim God, in the end, is going to do what's right. I don't know what happens in those last moments before a person dies. I know right now in places like Afghanistan and around the world, God appears to people in visions. Well, ever hearing the gospel, Christ presents himself to people in visions, and they're coming to faith. I don't, want to ha- I don't know what happens in the nanoseconds before a person closes their eyes who doesn't know Christ, has never heard about him. There's some people who say, well, you know, the way I look at it is the people who never hear, they're the people that if they did hear, they would not have accepted, so it's okay. They just pass on to eternity. God, you know, is... God has no moral obligation as a result of that because they weren't going to hear anyway. There are other people who say, no, I think in Romans chapter 1 and Romans chapter 2 that that God's just simply going to hold them accountable with whatever knowledge and light of his grace they have because, you know, Romans 1 and 2, Paul says, all we got to do is look around us and there's evidence of God. So for those who take that evidence seriously and cry out to a God that they may not know, God hears them and they'll be judged accordingly. In fact, the Bible seems to indicate there might even be levels of judgment. And so maybe those two things correspond. The answer is, I don't know that. We don't know that with certainty. But what we do know is that God is fair and just. He will do what is right. And what we do know is that God's mercy does triumph over his judgment. That's why he sent Jesus on the cross to take his judgment out on himself so we could be excused and forgiven. And rather than worrying about who's going to go to hell and who's going to go to heaven, what I need to do, you know, is is not try to figure it all out. I need to just go out there and let people know that God loves them and what he did for them, how he died for them and how they can be forgiven and how they can have hope in this life. That needs to be my mission That needs to be my responsibility, and we need to take it seriously. It needs to set heavy on our hearts and our minds. And I think that's the downfall of not teaching on the doctrine of hell. I mean, it's not like I got psyched up and couldn't wait to to teach this message this weekend. 
But if you don't teach about it, people don't know. And Christians especially don't know the awesome responsibility God's laid upon us to make the good news known. That's why we're involved in here, near, and far. That's why we advocate being, we are for many different things, like ending starvation. And that's why many of you, almost 400 of you, went down and packed meals this weekend so that 1,500 kids in Somalia will have a meal for an entire year. So how do we go do those things? We want people to experience God at work so they begin to ask questions, what's so different, what's so unique? And we get to tell them what he did in sending his son, Jesus Christ. We can't ignore the doctrine of hell. It's a reality. But what we can do, we can do everything we possibly can to make known the grace and the love and the mercy of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, not an easy message. <clears throat> I wrestle with it. People I love wrestle with it, Lord. And some people take a different perspective of it. And Father, as I look at your word, as I try to discern its plain and simple meaning, God, it's appointed unto men to die once and then have to face you. And for those, Lord, who have come to you, mercy triumphs over judgment, life over death. Christ, be our identity this day. Be our hope and our grace. And Father, as we go from this place, open our eyes. Open our eyes to the people, the students, the family members, the neighbors, the coworkers, the people around us who need to hear about your love and your grace. Help us to make, make it known, Lord, and change their hearts, we pray in Jesus' name.